1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's
0: longest-running conservative talk show.
1: He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion.
0: He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern
2: California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing. Particularly in terms of a uh, a diagnosis of clinical depression where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a, a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, Joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner, being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be with
2: you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns, uh, and I think ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your, um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community.
1: Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish, Mennonite, uh, Pennsylvania, Dutch area, a little bit east of that, toward Philadelphia.
2: Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. That's and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty
1: good way to say it. Yeah, I I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, yeah, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking. And, and, uh, God's hand in that may, may not be a very, um, uh, very visible at the time being makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, in retrospect, um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit and, uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non-traditional student married with three killed, three kids. And, uh, had started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays, and I had met a uh, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Estleman, and we began doing comedy together, and then and started working with a biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create uh, situations of humor out of, kind of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out.
2: How did your, your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah, uh-huh. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that, the congregation that was anticipating you to to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth yes. and and, and yeah. you make this what it would from an outsider would appear to be this 180 how do you go from studying to become a a traditional Mennonite pastor very stodgy and serious you know <laughs> as, as I guess some perspectives might be to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage working with a uh, another partner in interpreting yeah. scripture bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor again, not the ha ha, let's make fun of it, a- a poke fun at it rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum.
1: Well, I think at one level it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. It's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As, uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of, of struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction too. I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we are supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment. Uh, you you have empathy. Uh, You care about another person. That's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, And also, um, it's storytelling. And and stories remain one of, if not the best way, to communicate truth. And uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories.
2: Does it make um, it easier to, to see other perspectives, too? And I ask that question, Ted, because let's face it, when you're, when you're an actor, you're, you're essentially becoming someone that you're not. And you're attempting yeah, yeah. to convince yeah. the audience that you're, you are this person whom you're not really. Yes, and when you absolutely. get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yes. eventually were able to say, no, this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church, no, that's not exactly what I'm called to do.
1: <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor. Uh, But there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, Theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, And I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're, you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely wholly who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And and that is why it connects to people that, that we feel like are good actors because we can feel them being completely honest.
2: So to uh, be con- compli- to be to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen as the case may yeah. be. Yeah. Um, you you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yeah. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing to to be thoroughly convincing. And I'm wondering, did did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense? out of um, the, the the horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that uh, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure. Uh, an empathetic person will be drawn, I think, to, to, to the acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's... You know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on what on what, on what that means. And um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well. Um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spend more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each mm-hmm. of us.
3: Um,
1: so um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um and so it was a very much of a learning process. You 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 try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to life has to be lived, and um, everything can't stop around. Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run. His wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that that's very much the case. Uh, that it was helpful. But I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that and
2: um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean you're you're sure. watching this happening, you're trying to understand what's happening and yet at a level. I mean I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might be Seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it
1: is. It is. Um, it. There's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that that made. Um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt, uh, after Lee's death and, and, uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I, I know what this feels like to, to, to try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, That gave me a little bit of insight, but I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to to what you would have gone through on a regular basis where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to go through that day.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden, the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how, how to get myself motivated Uh, It's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, What does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, Joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life. Uh, following a a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to uh, one extreme, uh, to to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: The conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, A Not-So-Typical Journey of a Mennonite Actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner Lee struggling with a clinical diagnosis of, of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays and that certainly can be a challenge but lee's uh lee's disease went much deeper than that didn't it
1: yes it did it was it was the kind that um well i described it at one time just it's, it's the uh it's the constant companion it's the monster that hides not just under the bed but around every corner it's it's part of uh part of every day it's part of. Um, it's uh, I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it's it, it's hard to um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that we that seem to to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication and therapy, um, but that can uh, most of those have uh, at least at some level um, medication. I mean side effects that affect also. Uh, who you are as a person, and, and it, uh, it it can be frustrating because you don't think you you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um, for some, it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in in, in 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 being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, it, and I think it's a, a a horrific. Um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake. A misnomer about about what it is.
2: How uh, how did you discover? How did you first find out about these past well,
1: in, in many in many cases, apparently uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was 23, and uh, so there were certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of, of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young four, four two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that. So it wasn't until the I began. Uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface and, um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors or we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be uh, uh, something that that with Yu-Yo the manic manic parts were were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was a, he was a visual artist and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a, a twenty to thirty year uh, struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, aware that the highs are no longer very high, uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I feel like I've experienced with Lee. And, um, it, 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 at the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the previous 10 to 15 years, Um
2: and you know, we often hear that that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life, yeah. and you say, "Well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal." Yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the, the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after exactly. a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. I had a wonderful time. The three of us guys night out. We, we had a, a great time. And then the next that morning, uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night. And we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say he was he was uh, anxious. Um, but that, that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different. And, um, you know, in, in, in almost 20 years on the road, we missed, um, one show for a snowstorm and, um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, con- computed my arm, uh, on the edge of the stage. But in 20 years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show.
2: Mm. Um, for this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book laughter is sacred space uh, newly published by the way and uh, you can of course uh, order a copy through the usual suspects including amazon.com and uh, Ted is the book available also on your website? it is tedandcompany.com and company and, uh, all spelled out correct and, and company all spelled out Ted I'm curious how did you get word of Lee's decision?
1: Uh, I was making supper And uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor, uh, and it's not somebody you, you know, what's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said, um, the words is someone with you, and those are never good words to hear, and uh, said, you need to come over. Um, it didn't tell me exactly why, but it, it didn't take a lot of imagination to to uh, figure that out.
2: In the moment, so, uh, we say we're shocked, we're surprised. But thinking back on it, is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming?
1: I, I think the words that I used, and I, and I think a number of other people use the same words for similar situations, is you're, you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Um, it's those kind of... Those kind of issues that um, um, that I think anyone who's who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's. That's a good way to
2: describe it, Yeah. On the back side, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the, gee, what should I, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind, and, and we, we struggle with. But then as we try to make sense of it all, we try to find the, uh, what do you say, the, the proverbial silver lining in this cloud, yeah. things of that sort.
1: Uh, I have started to uh, be in conversation with a young man or, uh, of a similar age that Lee was who was struggling with a similar issue. He's very talented. He's not an actor, but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um, video aspect of it again. And I think it's to be there, to be listening as much as possible, to be empathetic as much as possible, to encourage them to see professional help. Uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, Regimen that that you listened uh, that you listen, and uh, or, what happens many times is, is, especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background, uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my, my well being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle, and we uh, and it sometimes um, they go off medication. Um, that, that can be very dangerous. Um, that's often a trigger point um, for a, a deeper crash, um, which you know, can have similar results, not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my, um, I think what I've, what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that uh, the depth of, of, of care and the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, um, you, can, you can be there as much as you, as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you, you just can't fix. Um no no amount of talking or listening that i that I could do would change that
2: um. <sighs> hmm. and 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 what <laughs> you said, I think there's perhaps significant because so often we get into the well, if I just said this or somehow that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. this is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time sort of, uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life, and uh, one or one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much, <laughs> much deeper than that, and and, and and maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh, is, is is really torturing ourselves at a level, isn't it?
1: I think it is, and that's the, that's the one thing that I continue to uh, to struggle with. I actually talked to another another um, uh, radio station this this morning, um, uh, and I've started. I, I've written a, a, a one man show based on the book, uh, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together, and and uh, and his suicide and what that meant, and that. Um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but the mourning is uh, the act of mourning is, a, is is just that in action. You choose to mourn, you choose to do the things that are self care. Um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up, and um, it it and and I I say in the play that I, I made the uh, the sarcastically a brilliant. I say it sarcastically, a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn, but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as as an acting company. And then to fight the grief. And the ways that we fight the grief sometimes is, not always, but sometimes is to deny deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much, that it didn't matter that much. It's the way that we try and protect ourselves.
2: As a coping mechanism.
1: It's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's, it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind a couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and, and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that... Um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do.
2: Does this also um, force change you? To, does it force you to become more? forward-looking, and by that I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing. Uh, There was a suicide in my family many years ago, and boy, the amount of time that that many of us spent on all the what-ifs and gee-whizzes and so forth, and yet, I think instead of, you know, while there is a time of mourning and certainly the time of grief, then to say, okay, instead of channeling our energies into what we can never change because it's done, what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive more caring more empathetic put more into life get more out of it and 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 maybe make make things better for somebody else if not for them for somebody else
1: I think that's I think that's a, a great sentiment it is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up and I think um, I can't speak for Lee, obviously, but I think that's where he would want want me to be. Um, I I I think what, what what truncated my 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 recovery uh, and healing out of that is I um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. Um, Part of that, part of what happened when Lee died, is not simply losing a friend; it was losing the business as well. So, if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence, um, recreate uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so, I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years, and ten shows in three years, um, to to create a new identity, to create a new brand, because um, most people. That knew us as a company assumed that the that the company was gone, and so it was coupled. It, it wasn't just losing my best friend; it was losing, um, it was losing a source of income. It was losing, uh, I, you know, all <laughs> the inventory, as it were, uh, was intellectual material that was uh, stuck in our heads. That was the inventory. Um, so. Uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's very little that can happen in moving um, moving back, but it's, it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful um, piece that, that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that, that is easy to hang on to, um, and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward. And a combination of guilt and anger Boy, it
2: just keeps you spinning. Yeah, you know? and it can be terribly uh, paralyzing too in the end game. Ted, we appreciate the time and the candor today. I know it's a, a painful topic to uh, to relive in the sense, and yet out of your pain and your your insights, you offer us uh, oddly enough. A lot of the pastoral care that you set out to to prepare yourself to do in the first place isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle, Ted Schwartz. Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. And the new book, as we mentioned, is newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at tedandcompany.com. And now
0: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All right, welcome back to the program. Class is now in session. Long-time listeners to this radio program know that I am not necessarily a major fan of government education oh i think the concept of public education is is a great one and i think providing quality free education to uh, those in our nation is something that is very important to do for our children and i wish that we could do more even for higher education as many countries are able to provide higher education at little or no cost to their students that said government Education, as it is today, is something that is quite troublesome. Now, I won't waste your time reading from one of my favorite documents that um, we got from an insider of the California Teachers Association, the uh, Guidelines for Academic Freedom in Public Schools, which came out several years ago, that uh, identifies a number of enemies of um, public education, including, um, let's see here, You'll love this enemies list. Uh, some names will sound, uh... Uh, familiar to you. Uh, the Christian Coalition is on it, Focus on Family, Eagle Forum, Traditional Values Coalition, the Rutherford Institute, Concerned Women for America, um, on and on the list goes. That That's who's on their hate list. And, of course, Friends of Public Education, uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, People for the American Way, a National Coalition Against Censorship, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, on and on the list goes. I've read some of this to you in the past, uh, and you know that it is an eye-opener to be sure. Well, my next guest, in fact, had a little bit of an education, so to speak, on what goes on education himself. Uh, He's the founder of the Education Action Group, regular contributor to TownHall.com, owned by this fine radio station's parent company, Salem Communications. Uh, His new the book is called indoctrination how useful idiots i love the subtitle how useful idiots are using our schools to subvert american exceptionalism and kyle olson great to have you on the program tonight
3: Thank you very much.
2: There seems to be certainly a significant shift that has taken place in public education in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. I remember uh, Phyllis Schlafly's best-selling book, Child Abuse in the Classroom, that exposed what was going on in the uh, 1970s. And and even just prior to that, we've made the shift from what traditionally had been teaching our children how to think to now today teaching them what to think.
3: That's right. And and in fact, what is happening is we have this social justice agenda in american classrooms where instead of kids thinking in uh, in terms of black and right uh, black and white uh, right and wrong uh, good and bad um, the social justice agenda is to have students develop this nuanced view where um, you know they're they're thinking in shades of gray and so uh... this this moral relativism that is being pushed now And so what I try to show parents and taxpayers um, in my book is all of these examples of lesson plans, textbooks, curriculum, videos um, that are in public school classrooms today, not every single classroom, uh, but many of them around the country, Um, uh, these issues that are being pushed on kids at very young ages. Um, Parents need to know about it, uh, and they need to stand up and do something about it.
2: Let's talk about what they need to know about all of this. I mean, to begin with, we certainly have heard the studies. We know of the reports. We've seen the kids come home with the report cards. We know that achievement at certain levels in government education today is so dismal. And ironically, consistently, the unions have been so opposed to any sort of performance standards to the point where you wonder, well, are are they first and foremost there to educate our kids? Is this about jobs or is there something other agenda going on here?
3: Well, unfortunately, I think it really does come down to jobs. I mean, that's why, you know, you think back um, during the stimulus and, uh, and all the other bailouts that have been proposed over the last couple of years, and none of the, none of the spending and uh, proposed new spending coming out of Washington, D.C., had anything to do with student achievement, um, raising test scores, making sure that every child can read when they graduate, which seems like such a radical concept. Um, but instead, it was about jobs and protecting jobs um, and, and those sorts of things. And, you know, on my most cynical days, I think that public education, public schools are little more than public works projects for the adults.
2: Mm. And to some degrees, not only keeping themselves employed uh, with very little standards, and of course, once you get teacher tenure as part of the process and realize that the largest and most powerful union in America today, and I, and I love to pose this question to uh, the unindoctrinated that will say, well, it must be the Teamsters or maybe it's the, the Longshoremen's Union or, uh, you know, some, some similar union that they're familiar with until you tell them, no, it's the NEA, the National Educators Association, that is the most powerful union uh, literally on the planet, uh, all of which, and again, I'm not saying that, that teachers don't have a right to collective bargaining and certain you know, employment protections and things of this sort, but when it goes so far that, that the teachers' rights, even at, at so-called educational uh, liberties um, or instructional freedoms, academic freedoms, uh, take precedence over actually giving the children an education that they can walk away away with and do something with, I think it's an absolute crime.
3: That's right. And and going back to how you opened the segment where you mentioned the different organizations, that shows that the NEA, the National Education Association, is more about uh, – it's a political organization. It is not a professional organization saying, how do we make sure that we have a quality teacher in front of every uh, classroom in America That's not what it's about. It has a political agenda. Unfortunately, it's a hard-left political agenda. It's run by um, uh, left-wing activists um, that are elected and and make the decisions on behalf of many of the the rank-and-file dues payers around the country. And so the the question is, is, that is what we are running into. And so the question is, what can we do about it? And I, there's, there's many things. I mean, one, teachers, uh, rank-and-file teachers uh, who don't like this agenda, who don't like paying the dues to see them go to uh, organizations like NOW and People for the American Way um, and NARAL and all of these other different organizations, Planned Parenthood, they've got to stand up. Teachers have got to stand up and say, I refuse to do this. And it's not easy. I mean, there was a there was a teacher that contacted our organization a couple days ago. Um, he tried to get out of the the Michigan Education Association, which, like California, um, is a closed essentially a closed shop state. But even though he technically dropped out of the union, he still has to pay five hundred dollars a year in dues. And so, if that's to me, that's one of the biggest shams in public education. Um, is that if you, want, if you want to be a teacher and if you want to try and make a difference in kids' lives, you have to pay this organization whether you want them or not. And it's a huge sham.
2: And of course beyond that uh, we get into the the instructional integrity or lack thereof uh, which is going to be I think the eye-opening focus of our conversation this afternoon and I I want listeners to really pay close attention there there's some things that we're going to share with you this afternoon that's going on most likely in your child's public school that I think you need to be aware of, and I think you'll think twice about whether or not you can actually afford to privately educate them or even homeschool them as a superior options. Now, again, let me put in the disclaimer here before I get hate mail and calls of complaints. We're not suggesting that all teachers have an agenda or that they don't care or that they're all about indoctrinating kids. I know a lot of teachers that are fine, hardworking people that really care about kids, really really want to equip kids with the tools and skills necessary to not just uh, think for themselves, but to ultimately succeed at life and excel in their chosen career or profession, uh, but make a difference in the world, too. And we applaud all of them. The criticism today is what goes on in the agenda at the higher levels within the union, the union leadership, and quite frankly, those that do promote, uh, what else can we call it, but a political and a social activist agenda. Think, well, how widespread is this? <laughs> Where do you find out. We'll get to that aspect of our conversation with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination. How useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism. We'll get a time out here, then come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues